Hello there, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. I do some of the preaching and other things like that. It's good to see you all here this morning. We're in the middle of this Compassion Conference, uh, Compassion by Command, dealing with poverty issues and things of that sort. Here's a little cartoon that uh, was dro- brought to my awareness. We should donate some ham and eggs, said the chicken. The pig says, for, for you, it's a contribution. For me, it would be a total sacrifice. So the question is, is are you a chicken or are you a pig? We're trying to be pigs for the kingdom here. Well, last week, uh, some of you know, I uh, uh, did a, a, one of my typical light and fluffy seeker-sensitive sermons uh, that are geared to church growth. That was a joke. Uh, if you weren't here for last, week, last week's message, I really encourage you to get it. I think it was a foundational moment for us. As we drew attention to the principalities and powers and the nature of generational sin and, and on the basis of Exodus 20, uh, argued that you can't really understand uh, poverty dynamics uh, in America and uh, race dynamics in America. And in America, you can't really separate those two things very much. You can't understand that unless you understand the nature of generational sin and understand something about the way that generational sins feeds the principalities and powers that continue to oppress people, that pollute the system, keep people in bondage. If we look at things through a strictly individualistic perspective, we misdiagnose things. And when we look at statistical differences between people, groups, if you're looking at it from a strictly individualistic perspective, you end up, it ends up feeding into racism. You're not looking at the bigger picture. And so we talked about the bigger picture last week. You know, I had a, uh, a kind of a, a vision of sorts about four, four years ago or so, um, kind of a mental picture that God gave me in prayer. I was dealing with an African-American brother, and we were having some, uh, some issues trying to work through. And it was just sort of, a, I noticed that it, it seemed like there was something toxic polluting our attempts to, to reconcile. And folks who deal with, uh, racial reconciliation a lot talk about this there, there's something else going on here and in prayer the Lord gave me I think it was the Lord gave me this picture as it was, it was, the Lord frequently does it was kind of a bizarre picture but I, I saw this like monster it was like a cloud that was a monster and it was coming towards me it was coming towards me uh, up a road but the road wasn't a geographical road it was a, a timeline coming from the past to the present I was looking at this cloudy monster coming towards me, very ominous, and it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the reason it was getting bigger and bigger is that it was sucking up like this vapor from the ground. I told you it was bizarre. It was like, it was like eating stuff, this vapor coming from the ground. But I knew what was going on intuitively that, that this beast was sort of feeding off sin that has gone on throughout history leading up to the present. In fact, there were some representations of some of America's sin that has been feeding this beast. And so I saw a representation of slavery and a representation of some of the betrayal and slaughtering of, of the American uh, Indians and all the things that sort of fed that beast. It was a beast of, uh, of racism. It was a beast of economic oppression. It was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was just the Lord's way of communicating to me that what was going on in this conversation and this issue that I had with this brother was, was not just the issue. There's, there's a history to this. And if I'm going to understand the dynamics of what's going on between us right now, I need to be aware of this beast that's been being fed for, uh, for centuries. 
It's generational sin that has been feeding the beast, going on for centuries. When Christopher Columbus and the conquistadors came over to America and so, so, supposedly discovered America and then raped and pillaged and stole and slaughtered their way to owning this land, they were feeding the beast. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to renounce that as we did last week. And when the pioneers won the wild, wild west by breaking over 470 treaties with the Native Americans and, and, and slaughtering them, putting them on reservations, they were feeding the beast. When the plantation owners imported millions of, of blacks from Africa and, and, and got wealthy on the blood of their backs, they were feeding the beast. When George Washington uh, extracted... Uh, from his, one of his 125 slaves extracted teeth from them without pain medication in order to make dentures for himself, he was feeding the beast, as was James Monroe, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. When he executed 30 of his slaves because of, they were revolting, they were feeding the beast, and so it goes, and so it goes. And I fully understand that we don't like to rain on the parade of our American heroes, but if we're going to break the cycle of, of sin and the generational sin and start to disempower the powers, we've got to name it. We've got to come against it and we've got to renounce it. If we're going to understand what's going on in the country today and in the church today. Yes. And you came back. I appreciate that. Yes. So that was just about setting sort of the terrain, understanding the spiritual terrain of what's going on. Uh, in, in America today, and, and, and if we're going to be people who are called, and we've got to be people who are called to uh, address economic and race issues, we've got to see the bigger picture. We've got to understand the beast. We've got to understand the generational sin. Now, I, that was just sort of setting up the train. What I want to do this morning is talk about how to get out of that bondage, how to help ourselves and other people get out of this bondage. You can think of bondage as Egypt. So it's about how to get out of Egypt. But even more importantly, it's about how to get Egypt out of us. Right. And so I want to entitle this, Getting Egypt Out. Getting Egypt Out. And I want to read from the book of Numbers. Uh, this is where Moses has been leading the children of Israel for some time in the desert. I just love this episode. It's bizarre in some ways, but uh, it, it, it has a lot to say to us. And here Moses is uh, going to be talking with the Lord. Uh, the rabble, which is just the complainers in Israel, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing. Again, it's, it, this wasn't the first time. They've been doing a lot of this. They started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. All that free food they got. It was so lovely back there. Also, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. It was a five-star hotel back there in Egypt. But now we have lost our appetite. <laughs> Boo-hoo. We never see anything but this manna. I would think that they'd be pretty impressed with manna showing up every day. Not, supernaturally, but they're bored with it. They wanted their leeks and onions and meat back at the five-star hotel. So Moses asked the Lord, I love Moses, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Do I look like their mother? <laughs> Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised an oath to their ancestors? This is your fault. You're not helping me at all. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. 
I cannot carry all these people by myself. <laughs> you're absolutely no help, Yahweh. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, then please go ahead and kill me now. <laughs> and he wasn't the last leader to ever pray that prayer. Kill me now! <laughs> Get it over with. I can't take it. So you'd think, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that, you know, getting out of Egypt, man, they've been there for four centuries, and now they're free, and they're walking through the desert, and you, you think they'd be going free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. You're not slaves any longer, Woohoo! Yeah, you would think, they're seeing Yahweh do all these miracles, and, and, and the man is supernaturally showing up. Wouldn't you think that that would excite them, and, and give them a sense of dignity and pride, and they're on their own, determining their own destiny now, heading for the promised land, no longer, no longer under that Pharaoh. Wouldn't you think that they'd just be kind of celebrating? And they did on occasion. But as soon as there was any sort of problems, they started wailing, and they want to go back to Egypt. As soon as they get thirsty, let's go back to Egypt, because at least back there we didn't die of thirst. As soon as there's any kind of military threat, let's go back to Egypt, because at least back then we didn't get slaughtered. When Moses has gone a little too long up on the mountaintop, they get a little nervous, a little bit scared. They don't go back to Egypt, but they go back to Egyptian gods. So he said, let's make some, let's make some golden calves because at least the Egyptian gods we can hold, we can see, they're right there in front of us. Yahweh is invisible. And then when they get tired of this manna, this food, let's go back to Egypt where we had these cucumbers and garlic and onions and bad breath. <laughs> you see, it's one thing to get out of Egypt. It's another thing to get the Egypt out of you. For four centuries, these folks have been slaves. They've been conditioned as slaves. They've been, they've been pounded on. They've been dehumanized. They've been disempowered for so long. They didn't even know what dignity was anymore. They didn't even really have a sense of what it was to be a free human being anymore. Uh, what it was to be living under God instead of some other oppressive human anymore. That's what happens when you're de disempowered and dehumanized long enough. You stay in Egypt long enough and Egypt gets inside of you. So even when you get out of Egypt, you're carrying Egypt around. And you can't think and operate as a self-sustaining human being under the grace of God. And that's kind of the dynamics that always happen when you have people that are oppressed for long periods of time. When there's generational sin feeding the powers for long periods of time, well, it gets in on the inside of folks. And there's a lot of difference between what happened to the Israelites and what's going on today, but there are also some parallels when you're dehumanized and disempowered for a long period of time, well, you lose your sense of humanity. And these Israelites had no shame saying, let's go back and be slaves. Better to be slaves. They had lost their sense of dignity. Poverty is not only about lacking things. In fact, in America, it's not primarily about lacking things. Poverty is about lacking dignity and being disempowered and being dehumanized. And so if we're going to address poverty, it's not just about getting people out of a financial Egypt, it's about helping people get the Egypt out of them. And we'll find, I'll show a little bit later on, that we get the Egypt out of us in the process of doing that. We who are affluent have our own sort of Egypt. So last week we looked at Norm, and I really appreciate Norm uh, letting us get a peekaboo into his life uh, with this interview that he had with Mary. And we looked at the aspect in Norm's life about how there were systemic things built up over generations, forces at work that the principalities and powers would use to keep him in Egypt. And so he has this father who is threatened by him ever being a success and systematically tries to keep him down. And there's a whole generational thing behind that. 
And we ask the question, what does that do to a psyche, to a person when their uh, father is threatened by them? And then he's got peer pressure. Uh, the peers who see his uh, uh, grabbing hold of opportunities as a bad thing. And they call him an Oreo. Yeah, you're black on the outside, but you're white on the inside because you're trying to be a success in a white person's world. And they set him on fire to try to remind him of what his place is. And so we looked at the systemic aspects uh, that were at work in Norm's early life. I want to now look at how he was able to get free from that. Uh, how he got out of Egypt. And it involved a relationship. So let's uh, uh, look at this interview, uh, a six-minute interview with uh, Mary, as Norm shares a little bit more about his life. So you have this gift of music, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Did you have it early on, or is it just something you got later in life? Or? When I was in fourth grade, um, the music teacher, um, his name was Doug Bischoff, um, was a 22-year-old guy fresh out of college, um, took a job at uh, uh, Public School 18 up on Park Hill uh, in Yonkers, New York. That's where I went to elementary school. Um, and was doing, you know, uh, doing the quote-unquote music class. One thing about me, I'm, I'm, I've always, I think I've always been very auditory, so I can hear things and remember them. So, you know, he would teach us the scales and then teach us the intervals and stuff, and I could always remember you know, the intervals. And I could also sing them. He wanted me to be a part of the choir. So I dropped out of school for a year when I was uh, a, a young teenager. You did? Yeah, I did. We'd all leave like we're going to school. I'd go up and meet my cronies up there and we'd all chip in our lunch money. We'd buy a bag of weed and we'd go back to my house and, and we'd smoke and smoke weed and, and drink 40s and listen to music and hang out and, you know, roam the streets. And your mom didn't know? Uh, not for about a year. And um, then? I, well, this was in junior high school. And um, I was, as a kid, was a football nut. I loved football. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I was a big Minnesota Vikings fan back in 69, 70. <laughs> you know, with uh, Joe Cap and, and uh, Fran Tarkington and all that. I was a big Minnesota fan. So my, my friends told the coach that, um, that I could throw a football. And I, at the time, I could throw a football pretty good. You know, he called me over, and because um, I was sitting on a side of the hill watching these guys, and and uh, he called me down and uh, had me throw some passes and said, "Are you in school?" And I said, "I'm not." And he goes, "Well, I want you here tomorrow morning, and I want you to get yourself enrolled back in school," which meant I had to go home and tell my mother <clears throat> I was no longer enrolled in school. And then music kicked in again then. And right? music kicked in again then because Doug ended up going from elementary school to Yonkers High School as a music teacher there. And so when I got myself enrolled back in school, he reeled me back in and I sang in the chorus and uh, Doug started this group called Youth on the Move. It kind of originated out of his school and his wife's school and she was working at a school that was over on the nice side of town I would say. Anyway, um, so you know he brought these kids together and we did a uh, a show that was kind of like you know uh, singing, dancing, skits, different things like that and it would be like a you know a two-hour show with an intermission and stuff like that. I was involved with a lot of different people and a lot of it had to do with with Doug being with him, I got to go places and see things and experience things that uh, a lot of kids like me didn't get to experience. I got to go to Ireland, I went to England, France, Germany, Austria, yeah. Switzerland. As a 13, 14 year old kid, I don't know of anybody in my neighborhood 
other than me that did that. This man desired to have a relationship with me mm -hmm. and, sh and sacrificed time and money um, to show me that there was more in this world to, to achieve than just surviving. He showed me that, you know, that I could use some God-given ability and with a lot of hard work can make something of myself. A group up with people came to our high school and, and performed. But, you know, but as a teenager who was, you know, hanging out with his friends and smoking drugs and doing all that stuff, yeah. I mean, I really had no interest uh, per se. But he was persistent. He had people go out and find me the night of, they did their concert and I was out with my friends, um, toked up pretty good and, and all, and we were playing basketball and, and hanging out, and, uh, and they came and said, you know, that uh, Mr. B's looking for you. He wants, he's looking for you, and he wants you to come up to the school. He had these people stay around and interviewed me to travel uh, with up with people. Huh. And so uh, I did the interview and all, and just, you know, and did it, you know, as a favor to him, but really wasn't all that interested. You know, uh, to be honest with you, um, but they accepted me. They accepted me and wanted me to travel. Um, that so I graduated in June, um, and August I was in Tucson, Arizona, at staging with Up with People. And what I didn't realize is that he had taken the money uh, for the tuition and paid for a portion of the tuition to get me out of there. He also paid for my plane flight to go there. Did that feel like the Great White Hope helped saving you? No. No, but no, because it was a relationship. I yeah. mean, you know, he he was he was my dad. He was he was honestly he was my dad. Um, he. What if you hadn't had him? Um, I don't think I'd be here. I mean, on this earth, I'm I'm sure I'd be um, dead. Yeah. We all have an opportunity to have an impact, short and long. I mean, I've been blessed to have this couple for the majority of my childhood, at least from 10 till, you know, 17, yeah. um, that invested uh, in me, um, even when I had dissed them, and, and I'm sure I pissed them off a, a lot, uh, in the fact of, you know, being a teenager trying to find his way and, and, and all, uh, but they never gave up on me. Um, they invested money, time, and love um, in me is the reason I'm here yeah. um, today. And I think we all have that opportunity, um, uh, be it with your own kids, be it with um, neighborhood kids, uh, even friends of your children. Um, there's, there's an opportunity to have an impact um, on a child. And I think that um, nowadays we, we take it all for granted, somebody else is going to do it, and um, and what I what I found through my life experience is that if we don't, um, if we don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. Right. It's really up to us, um, and I'm a living example of that. Amen. <laughs> Praise God. Thank God for Doug. And thanks, Norm, for, for, for being willing to share that. I like that phrase he uses. Doug helped him to see that there's more life than just surviving. In Egypt, you just survive, but God's will is for us to thrive. 
And that God wanted him out of the Egypt that, that he was in. Now, how'd that happen? It happened because Doug took an interest in him. Doug showed uh, worth to him by investing in him and sacrificing for him, going out of his way, sticking his neck out a little bit for Norm. And that was communicating to Norm worth. You're worth this. Played the role of father that Norm so desperately needed. Took him under his wing. And see, in doing all of that, he was helping Norm to be empowered to fight the system, to fight the powers, and begin to buck against the generational sin that had fed these beasts. All the while, Norm has got this, these forces that are coming to bear on him, and now he's being empowered to start to resist them. It happens because he's giving dignity and empowerment. You can envision a different future for yourself. You don't have to uh, go on the way you've been going. You're not fated, to, or slotted to be in this Egypt that you're in. Uh, you can see, uh, imagine a different course of action, a different life for yourself. Dignity and empowerment. And then Doug uh, gave him opportunities to act that out, uh, to travel the world, to expand his horizon. Opportunities. Poverty isn't primarily about stuff or money. It's about dignity and empowerment and opportunities. Now, Norm still had to make a choice. And it's really clear in the video that it wasn't always an easy choice. This wasn't a foregone conclusion that Norm would take advantage of these opportunities. And if it wasn't for Doug reeling him in to, to get on uh, up with people, uh, the opportunity might have passed him. There was a choice he had to make, and with that choice would come a lot of hard work. But now he was given the choice. Because of the dignity and the empowerment and the opportunities. Poverty is never primarily about stuff. Now, what would have happened if Doug, instead of entering into a relationship here, would have just said, yeah, gosh, as a white person, I feel kind of guilty that I've got stuff this guy doesn't have, so I'm going to give him $20. $20 a week even. Well, would that have fundamentally changed Norm? Not likely, not likely. It might have made the situation worse. What was Norm spending his money on during that time? It wasn't lunch. <laughs> yeah. And now you know that your worship pastor used to smoke pot, and you've known that about me for a while. We're a bunch of ex-druggies. But see, throwing money at that, if you don't recognize the system, and the, you know, you, if you're naive and you think it's just, just about an individual choice and the playing field's level, you'll think, gosh, anyone with $20 is going to use that as a, for a positive thing. Wrong. There's a system in place here. Uh, I, I've mentioned this book before. Um, it's, it's really worth reading. It's called When Helping Hurts. Forget the author right now, but, but it really analyzes the issue of poverty in, uh, in, in, in a systemic way and shows how people who approach issues uh, with, a, with a myopic individualistic perspective misdiagnose what the problem is and therefore misdiagnose what the solution is and really catalogs a number of stories of how primarily white churches in, in, with, with a sincere heart wanting to do something positive have often done some harm. Uh, and often it's about feeling, re releasing some guilt. Uh, we'll feel less guilty if we, on Thanksgiving, share some of what we have with, with other folks. And if that's all, that's nice in, its, in and of itself, but if, if there's no relationships there, then those sorts of token acts become ways of disempowering people, robbing people more of their dignity. And uh, they don't do anything to open up opportunities. There's a time and a place for just giving stuff when there's emergencies going on. I'll say more about that a little bit later on. But it's never a long-term solution. 
What's needed is relationships that empower, that dignify, and that open up opportunities. So a, a, a statement that I think really reflects uh, a, a, a commonsensical and biblical way of approaching issues of poverty uh, would read like this. Showing compassion, and that's what this whole series has been about, showing compassion towards the poor, usually, and there are exceptions, I'll say something about that shortly, but usually involves building a mutually beneficial relationship through self-sacrificial love that dignifies and empowers another while opening up opportunities for change. Let me read that again. Showing compassion toward the poor usually involves building a mutually beneficial relationship. It's not patronizing. Through self-sacrificial love that dignifies and empowers another while opening up opportunities for change. This is what Doug entered into with uh, Norm. This is what God does with us. Think about it. We were in an impoverished situation. We were in the Egypt of our sin and oppression of the powers. And God didn't just write us a check. Here's a grace check. Send it down. Or, or give us a get out a hell for free card or something like that. I know there's people today who think that's what he did, but that's not what he did. That wouldn't fundamentally change us. We would still grab it. We need it. But, but that wouldn't change us. That wouldn't introduce us into kingdom life. That wouldn't get the Egypt out of our heads, out of our hearts. That wouldn't empower us to dance with God and live the, and experience the fullness of life that he has for us. God didn't write us a check. There's a time and place for that. But what God did was he entered into a relationship with us. He came down from heaven. He entered into solidarity with us. He walked with us. He bore our sin. He helped us carry the load. And then he sacrificed by coming out of heaven and he sacrificed by going to the cross for us. And in doing that, he's ascribing worth and dignity to us. He's saying, you don't have to be oppressed by the powers. You don't have to stay in Egypt. You don't have to stay in your sin. You don't have to stay in your misery. You are children of God. You're made in my image. You've got unsurpassable worth. And I want to invite you to be my bride and to be filled with my spirit and filled with my joy and dancing with me throughout eternity and holy and spotless and blameless throughout eternity. Envision a different future for yourself. You don't have to keep going the way you've been going. He empowers us with his spirit to make a choice. And then he provides the opportunity. And the invitation is, will you come and, uh, under the reign of God? You have a choice to make. And there's hard work that goes along with this choice. But at least now we have the choice. People can say no, and they do say no. God won't coerce them. Actually, God gives us the dignity to say no. And the dignity not to be made into puppets. So you always have the choice but he liberates us to have that choice. And he does it by entering into a mutually beneficial relationship. And you might say, well, how does it benefit God? We're the total benefactors of this. But you see, we also benefit God. I know people are, have trouble thinking about that, think things that way. But the truth is this. God gets something out of this relationship. Remember the parable of the, the, the lady who found the lost coin. Did she get something out of finding that coin? She sure did. She was filled with joy and she threw a party. Or the shepherd, when he finds the lost sheep, he's filled with joy and throws a party. Or the father of the prodigal son, when he returns home, he's filled with joy and he throws a party. God gets something out of this. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. It says in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the suffering of the cross Scorning is shame. It cost God everything to be in a relationship with us, but he did it for joy. 
God is blessed by being, we, we bring something to the table here. He wants to partner with us in building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God, of course, doesn't have to get out of Egypt like we do, but he gets blessed by being in this relationship. And this is how God calls us to live. This is the kingdom right here. This is everything. Paul says, be imitators of God. That's the highest aspiration of life. Be imitators of God. And what that looks like is this. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. What God has done for us, we're to do to every other person we come in contact with. This whole Compassion by Command series is really uh, just one way of saying that. Be imitators of God. The generosity that God showed us in entering into a relationship with us, we are to show to others. And to really reflect God's heart and Christ's heart in the matter is to have an orientation towards the poor. We love, we're to love everybody unconditionally, but there is a special uh, aspect of God's heart towards poverty, to those who are oppressed economically. And the church is called to reflect that heart by living out the kingdom with an orientation to, towards the poor. So we are called to pursue relationships. We who are affluent, and by affluent I just mean we are people who don't have to uh, live day to day thinking how we're going to get our basic needs met. If you, if, if you live day to day wondering about how you're going to get your basic need for food, shelter, and clothing met, well then you'd be in the category of the poor. The affluent are those who have those that taken care of. And God calls us to develop relationships, mutually beneficial relationships with those who are in poverty, to share of our time and our resources with those who are in poverty, and to ascribe dignity and worth to those who are in poverty by how we interact with them and to provide opportunities for them insofar as we're able to make the decision, if they want to, to get out of the cycle that they're in. And remember, it's never a one-way street precisely because it's about dignifying and empowering people. No one wants to be a handout. That doesn't do any good. It's got to be a mutually beneficial relationship as it is with God. And those who, have, who are affluent and who have been in meaningful relationships with the poor will, will testify that, that, that you are the one who is the greater blessed in the relationship. The relationships that I and my wife and, and sometimes with our small group have been in with people to uh, walk with them uh, out of poverty, uh, it, it is an honor to do that. And there's such a blessing in doing this. There's, there's, a, dimension, there's, a, there's a dimension of freedom that I myself have, ex have experienced in, in my interactions and relationships with the pe people who are in poverty that I don't know if I would have had it in any other way. There, God just has wired it so that there's a blessing, a unique blessing that comes out of this ministry. And most importantly, that when we are, we who are affluent are in relationships with those who are poor in, and, and walking with them to get out of that Egypt, we will find that God uses that to get us out of our own Egypt. And more importantly, to get the Egypt in us out of our head. Because we who are affluent have our own kind of Egypt. We are also in bondage to generational sin and in bondage to the powers may look different than people who are in poverty, but it, they're, if anything, more sinister. We, we've got an Egypt of, uh, of, of, of consumerism in our head and an Egypt of greed in our head and an Egypt of the American dream in our head that needs to be exercised. We've got, a, we've got an Egypt of self-sufficiency uh, in our head. And as God leads us, as we begin to sacrificially uh, uh, develop mutual relationships with people who are in poverty, God uses that 
to free us, wake us up to the, to the Egypt in our head, and to free us from the stronghold of that Egypt in our head. So the kingdom principle is this. As you seek to set others free, you yourself are set free. Yeah. And see, now, now, amen, amen. And now, now we're working together across socioeconomic, ethnic lines, working together to fight the powers instead of being pawned by and used by the powers to fight one another. And that, folks, is what the kingdom is all about. That's what this series, Compassion by Command, is all about. Let me end with a few uh, quick words uh, on some practical matters. This is just a little snippet that we're going to give here. Uh, We'll have more to say about this in uh, several weeks to come. Uh, These are things that a lot of folks at Woodland Hills Church are already doing. We've got a lot of small groups and a lot of individuals who who have really been passionately involved in ministry to the poor. Uh, and, and we just so appreciate that. And the fact that we had 5,500 pounds of food uh, brought in over two-week period shows that, that this is a, a body of people who have got a heart for this. And I just thank God. I so thank God for that. But we want everyone brought on board with this. And we want, we, want, we want to be growing in our understanding of opportunities that are out there to be involved in these ministries. So a, a couple of, of practical tips. I'll first talk a little bit about global poverty. And then I'll talk about domestic po- poverty. Um, and uh, I'll, make it, I'll, I'll do that by, uh, by making three brief points. First, sometimes in emergency situations, simply giving money is what it's called for. Don't feel bad if you're giving money to organizations or yourself are giving money to people who are in emergency situations. But remember that that is never in and of itself an adequate long-term solution. There's a billion people right now who uh, aren't going to get enough food today. They're in the process of starving to death. A billion people, approximately. The first order of business is just to get them food. And for that, they just need food. And, and there's, there's organizations that need money for food. And so that is a legitimate way to address poverty. And even domestically, when there's, when there's a kid in the middle of January who doesn't have a coat, first thing is to give him a coat. Now, you want to also be thinking about you know, what are the causes that led him not to have a coat, but first, get the coat. And when there's people who are on the street uh, and they need some shelter, the first order of business is to give them shelter. And when there's people who don't have food, the first order of business is to give them food. So, so those are the situations where just giving money is appropriate. I would caution you, uh, unless God leads you otherwise, about just giving to strangers on the street who are asking for money because you don't know that you're helping them in doing that. Uh, I, reckon, I, I encourage people to carry around gift cards uh, gro- to grocery stores or McDonald's or whatever because then you know that at least what you're giving them is going to help them rather than maybe support a habit which got them there in the first place. But when there are genuine emergency situations, when there's genuine emergency situations, money is what's called for. So you might think, for example, uh, along these lines, uh, in third world countries, one of the greatest problems, if not the greatest problem, is lack of access to clean drinking water. Over one and a half the two billion people on the planet don't have access to clean drinking water. The water they drink is filled with parasites, which makes them sick and uh, kills them and things of that sort. So here's an organization that deals with that emergency. It's called Charity Water. There's others as well, but here's one example. Charity Water, where uh, it's a ministry that uh, digs wells in villages that don't have access to clean water or, per, or teaches them how to do irrigation or whatever is necessary to provide water to these villages. That's a good organization to give to. All the more so because the person who set it up has wealthy people who cover all the administration costs, so every dime you give goes to the well or the irrigation system. And that's always, by the way, I would encourage you to vet any organization you give to because they vary greatly in terms of how much they take 
uh, for administration and other things. Uh, organizations like this are really good because all the money gets to the people uh, who need it. So sometimes simply giving money is what's called for. Secondly, one of the best ways to dignify and empower the poor in the third and third world countries is by supporting people who have relationships with them. Now, not everyone, of course, is called to have a relationship with a person in a third world country, but everyone can help people in third world countries by being in relationships to the people who are called to be in relationships to people in, the, in third world countries. And generally speaking, the more grassroots you keep things and the more direct you keep things, the better. Uh, you, you know where the money is going. You, you are indirectly having a relationship to the people uh, that you are, are, are blessing. It's not just giving blind money, you know, money without really knowing where it's going uh, to an organization. This is why, by the way, we have, we have ministries here like CoFed that we heard about earlier and Providence Ministry. And we don't support them out of our central budget. We do a little bit, but, but not that much. We rather do ministry moments and then have them out in the gathering area so that those who are called can develop relationships with them. So you can connect the dots between the money you give and the kid that you help. And, and in that way, you get blessed more because the relationship is retained. And so we at Woodland Hills Church have, have, have ministries like that, co-fed and Providence Ministries, and we encourage you to pray about being involved with them. We also have short-term missions, trips that go out, and a number of other uh, ministries like that. You can talk to Steve Schmidt, our, our missions pastor, if you're interested in getting involved in that. Another really good way to empower people in, 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 th- in a third world context is by giving micro-loans, little loans, business loans, to help them get started. Now, they're not handouts, they're loans. We have a, a, an organization like Kiva, uh, which is set up to connect people who have ideas in, third, in a third world country, uh, people who have ideas about, uh, about a business, uh, with people in uh, developed countries uh, like America, where uh, uh, we have the money to help them get started. And it, it empowers them, it, pr- it gives them dignity, it provides an opportunity. And you might think, gosh, it's good. it takes thousands of dollars to start a business. Well, it does in America, but it doesn't in Haiti. And, and so you can give $50 or $100 or whatever uh, as a loan to a person. You stay in contact with the person. It's done through this organization. And as soon as they start making a profit, they pay you back. And then you can reinvest it in some other, uh, uh, some other uh, startup business. And about 95% of the loans get paid back. At least that's, that's what I, I've, I, I've read. A great way to empower people to start breaking a cycle of poverty. And the third thing I want to say is this. this. Where you are at, start where you are at, and then move forward. And by that, I simply mean this. The ultimate goal is to be in a mutually beneficial relationship with a person, if you're affluent, to be in a mutually beneficial relationship with someone who is in poverty. Uh, A relationship where you walk with them. But it may be that you're not there yet. And you can't get there overnight. In fact, sometimes for people, uh, if you don't have some awareness of, 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 of the issues, trying to get in those relationships can come across as patronizing. You know, will you be my poor friend? So, so it, it's, it's good to first work with people. It's good to work with people who have been around a little bit, who, who understand the dynamics of what's going on, and, and you move into this. And, and don't feel indicted if uh, you're not there yet. What we've done is put together this booklet. We vetted a number of uh, different organizations and ministries that deal with poverty. Uh, the, the reason we did that is because not all organizations are equal, as I mentioned before. Uh, these are ones that we feel are really good, and we're, we are endorsing them. Uh, some of them are associated with the church, some aren't. 
And um, you can get this online at, at the church's website. You can just download it. Uh, or you can pick it up at the hub if we have some left over. I'm told that we had run out, but we're trying to print them up very fast. Uh, but you can, we'll have some more next week, or you can download it online. And so we have a number of things to get involved in here. Now, some folks here already have their ministry, and that's taking up all your time, and you feel good about that? Wonderful. This is for others who are just considering this. And um, what we've done is we've ranked in these ministries the level of commitment that we think would be required there. So, for example, for, for example Emma's Place. Um, this is a ministry very, just down the street here. And it deals with uh, uh, single uh, women or single-parent homes, uh, single-parent families that are experiencing homelessness. So it meets an immediate need by providing shelter, a home, but it also has a long-range program to get folks out of the cycle that led them there. And uh, a level one would be the, the, an entry level, where you just help with bulk mailings, and they need help doing that. A level two would be like where you uh, volunteer to clean, paint, or do yard work, or help as a, uh, as a group or an individual, small groups uh, coming and being part of this. A level three would be what they call circle of allies, where now you enter into a relationship with a family in poverty who are actively striving to become independent and self-sufficient, and you walk with them. That would be the ultimate goal, but to get there, we encourage you first to start, you know, dip your feet in the water before you, 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 you dive all the way in. And we do that with all the ministries that are in this book. So I encourage you uh, with your small groups, your families, your friends uh, to get this. And if you don't already have a ministry that, you, that is, you're fully invested in and that you feel is adequate, uh, pray over these, these opportunities that are here and, uh, and seek God's guidance on this. As we together as a body want to be a giant Jesus uh, that ministers to the people who are in need, expressing God's heart for the poor. I'm going to end with a quick prayer. As I do so, would the prayer teams come forward? And if you're here and you have any need whatsoever you want to have prayed for or just need to talk with these folks about something, I encourage you to come forward uh, at the end of the service. But Father, we right now just want to thank you for all that you have done in us and through us in this series. Continue that work. And I pray, Lord, that you would give all of us wisdom about how you, Holy Spirit, would direct us to get plugged in to ministries and organizations in ways that will be mutually beneficial and impacting people who are in poverty. Direct us, lead us, guide us. Keep the fire, the fire, the passionate fire of your heart for the poor always in front of us and burning within us. As we get set free from our Egypt, helping others get set free from their Egypt. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and build the kingdom.